Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Damn Truth. I am your host, Steve Dam, and what I do is I tell you stories that I think you'll think are funny, that I think are funny, and I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to share part three of Okanagan, the final chapter. When we last left our heroes, the band, they had just completed one of the roughest nights uh, of, of their gigging lives. Uh, they had played at the Caribou Inn in the ballroom and survived and headed up to sleep. And it was quite, it was quite an adventure, quite a night. And now, Okanagan Part 3, the final chapter. Three of us woke up in the hotel room Saturday morning after a less than restful night. I had managed to find a layer of the bed that I felt would be clean enough to sleep on inside my sleeping bag. I took the bedspread off and laid the bag on top of the extra blanket without touching the sheets or pillows. That's how I did it. I would have risked the floor, but the night before, I was too tired to search for a spot large enough for me to lay down on for the dangers of protruding framing nails. My recollection of where Dave and Toby slept is a little foggy, but I do know that Dave was creeped out more than I was about the bed situation, and he may have spent the night leaned up against the knobless door holding a table lamp at the ready for an intruder as he dozed off sporadically through the night. But for all I know, he slept in the bed. I doubt it. By the way, dear listener, I want you to know that I'm, I've typed this in Microsoft Word, and it, it's told me that the word knobless is incorrect. It, it's the only word I can use simply to tell you that the door had no knob, thus it is knobless. I, I won't use this word in any other story for the rest of my life, hopefully. hopefully. But yes, Microsoft Word, I know knobless is wrong. Just like I know that it is wrong to not have hotel doors without knobs. Seriously, the rooms had no doorknobs. Yes, it will matter later. Toby, who simply couldn't stand the feeling of sludge that had built up on his body, attempted a shower. Desperation will drive a man to do many things. And Toby just wanted to feel clean again. He just wanted to feel clean. I don't know what happened, but I understood it went badly. Neither Dave nor I blamed him, though we did ask him to reconsider. It was short, probably unpleasant, and although his hair looked better, and he maintained that it was a better idea than not, you could see in his eyes that he felt like he had traded one vile smelly state for a different coating of vile and stinky. Because I was fighting a throat infection and having trouble getting actual oxygen past the one-inch layer of secondhand tobacco smoke still coating the inside of my lungs, I was miserable. Exhausted and sore from the evening's workout on the drums, I attempted to clean myself with a spare t-shirt. I always have one. Uh, travel soap I took from a hotel classier than the place I was currently inhabiting, and the sink. And I let the water run until I was sure it had spent the minimum amount of time inside the hotel's actual pipes. Dave, Toby, and myself 
all feeling a little bit better, were ready for a bit of breakfast and to begin the 12-hour wait to play the second half of our contracted duty. But where was Eric? Where the hell was Eric? Have you seen Eric? Did he come back last night? I didn't hear him come in. Is that his stuff over there? Where is he? Eric was dead. We were sure of it. We hardly knew the guy. He had practiced with us a few times, and he had replaced our old bass player for only the past few weeks. This was his first gig with us, and we killed him. Did we kill him? I didn't kill anybody. I'm sick. Not sick, like sick in the head, but not well enough physically to truly be a suspect. I mean, would I be an accessory? I drove him up here in my van. I'm responsible. No, Toby's responsible. He booked the gig. All roads lead to to Toby. I was just following orders. Oh, poor Eric. What about his parents? Somebody's going to have to tell his parents. They sure won't want to hear it from Toby. Dave's too sensitive. I can do it. I can tell Eric's parents that Toby let their little boy be kidnapped and eaten by the feral populace of Okanagan. I was a natural helper. I can phrase it so the blow will be softer for his parents. Did Eric have a dog? That dog will never get to play with Eric again. I wonder what the university will do. They they say that if your roommate dies while you're in school, you'll get straight A's for the quarter. He's not our roommate. Surely the university would give us some consideration on this? Probably not Toby. He's going to go to jail. But I surely could use some great relief. Dave interrupted my thought process by saying that Eric would probably show up sometime this morning and we shouldn't worry about waiting to get breakfast with him because he had no problem deserting us the night before. They were a little peeved that Eric didn't suffer the night with us as a band. I just wanted him to be alive. Not part of some musician skin patchwork made of wayward bass players that wandered too far from the Caribou Inn stage. At breakfast, biscuits and, it was biscuits and gravy and it was fantastic. We tried to put together what the three of us saw the night before. By the way, of the three drunks at the bar the night before, two of them were still there in the same seats. If the third drunk was still there, I would have sworn that they were sitting in a time loop. Between the three of us, we were able to piece together a scenario even scarier than what I alone witnessed. And the bouncers said last night was the slow night. Wonderful. We had hours to kill in Okanagan that day. It was sunny, but the temperature leveled out at about 15 degrees Fahrenheit. Not centigrade, Celsius, not Fahrenheit. There was a layer of fresh frost on top of about eight inches of fine powdery snow. We figured we'd hop in the van and go see the sights. We were ready to go anywhere but the caribou. The prospect of an entire day sitting in that room would have broken my soul. It was about that time that our bass player appeared seemingly out of nowhere. He was wearing his same outfit from the day before and yet was looking well-rested. I believe Dave was the first to address him. Hey man, where the heck did you get off to last night? And Eric says, 
I think there was a party. Are you okay? You think? You don't remember? Were you drugged? Eric, did they give you Rohypnol? That, that, that was me. And Toby busts out with, how did you get here? Did somebody drop you off? Dave asked, did Buddy Holly drop you off, Eric? Were you at a party with the big bopper, James Dean? What other dead 50s icons did you meet last night? Eric, just stone-faced. You guys going for a drive? Eric, what the hell happened to you last night? Where did you go? Did you guys already have breakfast? Or uh, we eating on the road? Right. Dave and Toby and I looked at each other. It was clear Eric didn't want to talk about what happened to him or he did not know what happened to him. Of course, we were all dying to find out. But all the ribbing and surprise questions we threw at him didn't shake his resolve to either fess up or unblock what lay deep in his subconscious. What was clear was that something profound took place at that after hours party and it was not going to be revealed by Eric through anything short of hypnosis. Across the street from the Caribou Inn was the saddest pet store in the world. Saddest as in every animal in there had to be as depressed as any animal could be. One look at the exterior, and I'm judging a book by its cover, and you would imagine that any animal inside, if given an opposable thumb, would use it to first grasp a tool to break out and then to extend that thumb on the side of the road to hitchhike to a better life. It was incredibly out of place from a marketing point of view. All right. The pet store had as much business being in that town as an oxygen bar. It was as if a small child designed the town, hotel, post office, general store, pet shop. I didn't want to walk over there and see what kind of animals were in there. In my mind, I imagine walking down the single aisle of the business, lined with cages filled with marmots, misshapen kittens, a three-legged dog, maybe a couple crows jammed into a hat box. I pictured a trout in a quart canning jar. I worried that the place would have a five-gallon bucket filled with writhing garter snakes. It was the kind of place that would sell you Darwin fish under the guise of guppies that evolved into frogs in a matter of weeks. It seemed like that kind of joint. Dave asked if I wanted to go in and check it out. I told him my misgivings, and he took a different approach. He believed that these were the pet stores that had all the illegal stuff that nobody else would dare to sell. He just said, fine, you stay here. I'm going to go buy a monkey for $3. After several minutes, Dave came back to the hotel. He said that I had been correct in my assumptions and the smell was unholy. So we had heard there was a Walmart in the town of Omak, six miles away. I don't think I had ever been to a Walmart before. So... After the band made my sick body scrape the ice off all the windows while they sat inside the warm van, we were off on a Walmart adventure. As we drove through Okanagan, we got a chance to get a look at the town where our audience was coming from. Doing a quick calculation of number of homes in the area surveyed and extrapolating out, 
that the population inside this 50 mile radius, the bouncers talked about would look like we were able to come up with some rough census numbers. Then we compared that to the data we collected about our audience at the bar. We were able to determine that over 95% of the townspeople were alcoholics with a plus or minus 5% margin of error. And the last night's performance statistically had to be an all ages show. The four of us came to a stop at a T intersection on the way to Walmart. And I, God, I am ashamed of that last sentence (laughs) on, on our side of the street. It was Okanagan in the mid 1990s. So present day on the opposite side of the street, it was Sicily just after world war one. I say this because there was a small elderly woman in an old, but pretty black dress standing ominously next to a sheep on a leash and three chickens in separate cages stacked on top of one another. The band must have all been staring impolitely at this peculiar sight, right? Because she looked up at us, spoke something inaudible in our direction and turned 180 degrees away from us. We were pretty sure she cursed everyone in the van and we just laughed because there was nothing she could do to us that was worse than having to spend another night in our hotel room. We made it to Walmart, and Walmart is just Walmart. What goes on at Walmart is a waste of our time, and I will not trouble you you with the details. Eric bought a Nerf gun, and we got out. All right, so please remember that the four of us were from rural areas. I think Eric was rural. He certainly has a level head and is decidedly not cosmopolitan. And uh, we're used to seeing humble surroundings. What was out of the ordinary was the approach to life. The experience was like driving through a foreign country that was either on its way to or from third world status. And the whole town seemed trapped in time. We stopped at a small general store and found toys that were actually collectible from the 1960s, yet sold on the rack as new. For real. There were so many moments like this. I wondered if I was dreaming or perhaps in a coma after taking a randomly thrown beer bottle to the head the night before. I wanted it to end. I cried a little. We rested up back at the suite by napping and shooting an empty Pepsi bottle out of the air with Eric's Nerf gun, which was okay. I mean, it was, it was the high point of the trip, really. When Saturday night rolled around and the crowd started coming in, it looked like the chow line in a circus mess hall, the kind of circus that was being investigated for animal cruelty in all eight Southern states it toured in. Many folks from the night before staggered back from, for more. They staggered back for more caribou in action. They were easy to spot as most were wearing the same outfits and sour expressions as they had on 22 hours ago when they were tackled, they were tackled out the front door by hotel security. Still others were new faces with a freshness that said, today is the day I begin hating life. Everyone else shall feel my pain starting now. These were the folks 
that were wearing what I call fight bait or clothes so stupid looking or with insulting messages ironed on or spelled in hot pink puff paint that they draw a comment offensive enough to start a physical conflict. Clothes that say, hey world, look at how ridiculously I'm dressed. If I catch you so much as looking at this spectacle I'm putting on, we're going to fight, possibly to the death. There were a lot of guys in half shirts. Again, it's January. And since my mouth is probably the smartest thing my body has to offer, which would ironically be used to say some very dumb things, I needed to get behind my drums and stay as far away from the people as possible. I remember it being hard to get to the stage because of how many people were jammed into the room. Please do not read into this as me believing we were so outstanding the night before that word traveled all over the region to everyone to get to the Caribou Inn to see this amazing rock band. None of us had any illusions that the people were there to see us succeed. They were there to make us fail or eat us. I know this is the second time I made the joke about being eaten, but remember, you weren't there. And if you asked any of the band members that night, they would tell you the same unreasonable fear flashed through their minds. Just as security had explained to us the previous evening, Saturday night was a whole different ball game. There were even more people, which we didn't think was possible, let alone within fire code regulations. They were more alert and awake than the Friday audience and therefore ready to party much sooner. They told us by pounding in unison on their tables before we began. In unison. Although we've seen this happen on film many times, I can tell you that it is quite unnerving. If I was a drinking man, I would have required a shot of liquid courage before going on. However, I counted my blessings as being as sober as always for the sheer fact as I wanted all my senses sharp and my wits about me. Midway through the second set, the members of the band noticed a couple of women staring at Toby in an unhealthy type of way. Unhealthy for Toby. They weren't together, but they were standing close to Toby and staring up at him longingly. He turned to all of us and was visibly concerned as one of the women, a brunette, who had to have 12 years on Toby and wasn't his type. You know, Toby's type being a woman with all of her front teeth and an awareness that they are single and not at the Caribou Inn with another man. That's right. As this woman shouted her confession of love to Toby over the band's sound system, and music, her boyfriend, husband, sugar daddy, I don't know, was ready to break Toby's pretty face for making her love some attractive boy guitar picker. It all came to a head when Toby bent down to show the brunette his engagement ring that indicated he was taken and she would have to either stay with the man that drove her to the bar or try to convince one of the other band members to vote yes on her bond initiative, if you get my meaning. This did not go over well with the brunette. 
she went from wannabe groupie to fully winged harpy in a flash of venom and spite. She screamed at Toby. Nothing in particular. Just a horror movie scream. A horror movie scream. And then when Toby returned to the mic to sing the song we were in the middle of, the woman attempted to take the two-foot high jump up onto the stage and she upset Toby's mic stand and sent the hard metal microphone capsule right into Toby's lips and teeth, which is unpleasant at best, causing Toby to quickly step back and turn his back for a moment to check for tooth chips and blood on his lips. Meanwhile, at the front of the stage, the woman took control of Toby's lead vocal microphone began to spread her scorn-filled message to the crowd of the Caribou Inn over the band's sound system. Now, I'm paraphrasing. The message was that Toby, the man she was pointing at, enjoys mating with sheep. She repeated this message again and again with a desperate look on her face, like, like she needed you to believe her. The woman's conviction that Toby was a notorious molester of lanolin-bearing livestock was absolute. The audience needed to know this about Toby so something could be done about it. The purpose, of course, was to paint Toby as an undesirable person, and sheep coupling was the straightest line this woman could draw to that goal, because if she couldn't have him, then nobody could. By the time Toby had turned around and attempted to take the microphone away from the harpy, Mullet and No Mullet, our security team, were cutting a swath through the crowd, making their way to the bandstand. Mullet made it to the stage first and wrapped his arms around the woman's body from behind. The woman's back was facing the audience as she screamed her disgustingly comical message directly at Toby. She was quickly and easily removed from the stage, along with the microphone, microphone stand, and microphone cable. The microphone cable ran down to the front of the stage where it was duct taped to the floor along with the other microphone, instrument, and speaker cables. As Mullet got farther away with the offending woman, most of our cables were being pulled up and off the stage. All of our microphone stands were jerked away from us by the cables they were attached to. At one point, Mullet's progress was impeded and he must have believed she was struggling against him and he gave a mighty heave, pulling just enough for our cables to come out of the sockets to prevent the show from continuing. No Mullet, who was holding the woman's insignificant other at bay, saw what had happened just beyond the nick of time and signaled to Mullet to stop Mullet dropped the woman and returned the microphone and stand to the stage. He was genuinely sorry when he gave the microphone set back to Toby. And Toby was genuinely thankful to Mullet for coming to his rescue. I mean, what do you say to a guy like that? We took a short break to get the sound back in order, played a few songs, and took the long break that we were due. Toby and Eric stayed behind to double-check the sound system. Dave and I retreated to the only other place where there were no people. Our suite. We grabbed a couple of bottles of water and flipped on the Cartoon Network in the room to try and make a mental escape for ten minutes or so. We had barely sat down 
when someone pushed our knob-free door open and stood blocking the door. Dave and I looked at each other with disappointed exasperation. Could we not take a few minutes away from the mustard gas-filled, violent freak-fest environment to breathe some air that was only 78% polluted? Now this stranger literally darkened our doorway with a drink and a lit cigarette in hand, swaying slightly as his eyes focused on Dave and me out of synchronization. He wore a bolo tie around the neck hole of his unpressed button-up. And for those of you unfamiliar with the bolo-style tie, it is a decorative neck fastening that instead of incorporating a lovely traditional arrow of silk fabric tied neatly around and under the collar of a dress shirt, utilizes what amounts to a shoestring and a shiny rock to attempt the same purpose. You can get a very nice bolo tie for about $15. This man's was mid-grade. Now, using the bolo tie as your reference point, dress the man as you would probably imagine. Add a few cigarette burns and nefarious mustache. Neither of us made any sudden movements, as is advised when faced with a dangerous wild animal. Dave and I sat still as we exchanged silent eye contact with the stranger. Danger. And uh, Dave spoke first. Can I help you? I just want you both to know that nothing has been signed yet. Dave and I looked at each other quickly and puzzled. Like, I, I tried to remember what was within grabbing distance from me to defend us in case Mr. Rummy McCrazypants decided to make a sudden move. The lamp was too far away, the Nerf gun would be ineffective, and the sleeping bag was too soft, and I wasn't going to touch the chicken skeleton under the bed. But after a couple gentle sways of his drunken form, I figured even with just Dave and I in the room, the six of us he was probably seeing made him feel outnumbered. The silence lingered for a moment before I began probing for more. So, well, that's a relief, wouldn't you say, Dave? <laughs> yes, my lawyer isn't even available at this time. So who are you, sir? I said as unthreateningly as possible. I have a door. You can choose to walk through it together or separately, but now is the time. Dave says, does this door that you speak of have a lock? Because I can't think of a time when I would want anything more than a door that locks. I have a door of opportunity for you both to walk through. Oh, it's one of those kind of doors. Yes, one of those kind. Nothing has been signed yet. Okay, and what would we be signing? I have a door to stardom. You and your band are going to be very rich, but are you ready to walk through that door? If only we had one ounce of drinkable alcohol, we could have offered it to this gentleman. He probably would have passed out or died. However, 
He was violating laws of thermodynamics, just being as drunk as he was, holding a lit cigarette and not bursting into flames. The only logical explanation could be that this man was, in fact, the devil. Dave, are you with a recording label? Dave asked, knowing full well that this man was not Atlantic's hottest A&R representative. You, you know, you, you know, you boys have a lot of talent. I've been watching your show and you need to you know, tighten it up a bit. But, you know, you're a good band. I might be in a position to make you guys a lot of money. I have. You have a door, Dave says. And the man winks and points at Dave with finger pistols and made a clicking noise uh, with his tongue. So apparently the finger pistols were empty. You got it. Now, are you going to walk through it together or by yourselves? So are record companies interested in cover bands now? I thought they were only interested in original artists. I do music. I, I used to do music. Business with music. I had houses and cars and mansions and boats, but I don't, I don't want to get into that right now. Listen, one, always tape your stuff down. Did you see that lady rip off? The stage on your cords and wires. Uh, so she didn't trip like uh, she pulled the cables up when she was dragged off the stage. My point is that none of that would have happened if your gear was taped to the ground and not with scotch tape. Uh, I, I came to the rescue here. I'm like, we used heavy duty tape. Heavy-duty duct tape to secure the, ca the cables to the stage, and we always secure our gear. That's right. You got to start doing that, or going to have accidents like tonight happen all the time. You got a lot of talent. I don't want to see it wasted when an accident ruins your life, do you? Uh, Dave and I were at a loss. We were at a loss for words. I... I'd better get back downstairs. The band is starting to play again. Have you guys heard the band? They're pretty good. I'm going to make them famous. I've got a door for them to walk through, to open up and walk through, and I, nothing's been signed yet. The man then staggered back downstairs, leaving half of the band he was currently listening to in a horrendous hotel room behind him. Dave... Dave looked at me and he says, we could leave right now and go home. Toby and Eric could ride back with Marty and Walter. We'll just say I got sicker and you had to drive me to the hospital in Ellensburg. I'm totally with you. We would probably lose our instruments. You know, I'm actually fine with that. After yesterday and tonight, I don't think I'll need my drums anymore. Dave says, get your stuff. <laughs> after realized, after realizing I'd taken out all my valuables down to the stage for safekeeping from the hotel room, doors didn't have knobs or locks, just ramming that point home. There was no way we could have made our escape without going down to the stage to get my keys and wallet hidden safely under a sweaty towel in my gear bag. 
even if we did have the guts to just up and leave Okanagan two hours before our obligation was completed, we couldn't do it. Ironically, the crappiness of Okanagan actually prevented us from leaving Okanagan. Realizing there was no way we were getting out of here without playing the rest of the show, Dave and I headed back to the stage to see what would happen next, and we were slash were not disappointed. There's a saying many bands use when playing at a beer joint. The more you drink, the better we sound. Okanagan, once again, was there to prove us wrong. (laughs) With as much as they were drinking, we should have sounded like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, singing the Beatles through a Bose sound system mixed by Rick Rubin. But instead, the better we sounded, the drunker they got, and the drunker they got, the angrier they became. The action was therefore taken up a notch. Think of all the barroom brawl cliches you've ever seen. We saw many of them that night. We saw the standard fighting between two guys where the guys have their hands around each other's necks. We saw the old broken bottle as a weapon thing. We saw the woman dragged off a man, slapping and kicking him. Saw a table turned over at the beginning of a fight. A chair was picked up and thrown at someone. All of these were separate instances. It was a cornucopia of bad decisions played out on the dance floor. However, all of these skirmishes were just the undercard fights for the main event. After the third forced encore, it, yeah, we tried to end the show a little early. <laughs> okay. It was finally time to get off the stage. As rough of a crowd as they were toward the end, they were really cheering us on and having a good time. But too little, too late, Okanagan. All right? Which in hindsight is exactly what should have been our sign-off on the sound system instead of, can Eric have his hat back? I was worn out. I just wanted to pack my drums up and go. And why not? The van was parked right out in the front of the place. Best parking spot at the Caribou Inn. But I felt like I only had enough energy to make it out of the ballroom, and that was full of smoke and hatred. And I, and I went to the lobby, where some cleaner air would be circulating. I sat down in the lone easy chair in the far back corner of the lobby and watched the crowd filter out as I took puff after puff of my asthma inhaler. I must have looked, as most of them did, sweaty, tired, and completely devoid of hope. No mullet dragged a man, unable to stand, to the middle of the lobby floor and made him shut your mouth and stand still. The man mumbled a little, but straightened right up uh, when the tiny owner of the place came out and told the intoxicated man in no uncertain terms that he was never to come back to the Caribou Inn. The man hit his knees immediately and still was only at eye level to the top of her blonde afro, all right, and began to beg and plead to be able to come back. He promised he would stay away for a week and never cause any trouble again. Tears 
streamed down the man's face as the owner again told him no. He wailed and had to be drug out of the building by both mullet and no mullet. They had barely returned to the lobby when it started to churn with trouble. So in professional wrestling, there's a style of contest known as a lumberjack match. It's where 10 or more wrestlers start in the ring for an every man for himself battle royale. The object of a lumberjack match is to throw your opponents out of the ring and to not be thrown out yourself. Very exciting, very violent, and very much what was about to happen at the Caribou Inn. It's like a like a Benny Hill thing. A group of six to eight small men came out of the bar brawling with each other. I say there were six to eight because they were extremely difficult to count. They were all about five feet tall, 135 pounds, and looked nearly identical in every way, and they moved around too much for me to get a solid number. But when I say brawling, it was only because that was what they appeared to be doing. No damage was really being done because they were all moving like the fight was taking place inside Jell-O. Nicotine-colored and flavored Jell-O. They were moving so slowly. You would have thought they were blocking a fight scene at one quarter speed to rehearse how the real fight was going to go down next week. Okay, Punches landed on faces with the force of a refrigerator door closing under its own speed. They wrestled to the ground like they were trying to fit too many items in a suitcase. The fight was not dangerous, yet... When the blows landed, the people being hit acted as if they were thrown at full speed. It's very confusing. They would break apart and stand in a large circle and then pick an opponent across from them, yell something in mumble drunken speak, and then charge slowly into the circle and accidentally fight someone else. It resembled at times one of the better square dances I've been to. This big fight was so slow and poorly executed that I, even in my exhausted asthmatic state, could have stood in the center and dropped every single one of them looking like Bruce Lee doing it, if you filmed it at regular speed and then watched it on fast forward. Mullet and no mullet each picked up several of the combatants after they had all ended up in a dog pile on the floor and carried them out the door in almost one trip. I watched from the chair as Mullet took one slap to the face too many from one of the little men as he stepped off the curb in front of the Caribou Inn. Mullet pulled the man off his shoulder and spun him around by the collar, slamming him into the side of my parents' van. I bolted out of my chair and flew across the lobby past the staggering throng of booze zombies. As Mullet doubled down on the little man six inches off the ground against the van my parents trusted me to bring back in one piece, I threw the caribou's lobby door open with the sign taped to it asking me to please use the other door. 
I had lost my cool and roared with the last remaining pieces of my hoarse voice. Get him off my van! Mullet looked at me puzzled. He was clearly about to push this little aggressive jerk through the panel window of my family truckster, but caught the rage on my face, looked at the van and pulled the ejected patron off the van. Mullet gave me a look of, oops, I'm sorry about that, dude. Won't happen again. And with that, threw the man across the street and into a snowbank. The offending bar customer actually flew from the parking stalls to the, to the other curb. Mullet walked up to me and clamped one of his big mitts on my shoulder and told me he was sorry about roughing up my van. When, I, when a man like Mullet apologizes to you, you accept that apology and maybe apologize to him for something in return. The owner asked Dave what I was yelling about. And as they watched out the window, Dave explained to her that the bouncer had a guy up against my parents' van and that I wanted to ensure that van made it back intact. And she looked at Dave as if it was all my fault. Why the hell did he park uh, the van out front? That's the worst space in town. To which the correct response would have been, yeah, and it's in front of your place, lady. But seeing as how we hadn't been paid yet, at that point, Dave just wisely shrugged as she walked away. I just went up to the wretched hotel suite to fall asleep as quickly as possible. The reason wasn't so much that I was exhausted, which I was, but to time travel to Sunday morning when we could load up and race out of town as quickly as possible, which we did. The ride home was uneventful. We had played the gig, been paid, and miraculously not incurred any extra holes in our bodies, gunshot, knife, or otherwise. Only the mystery of Eric's Friday night remained. But questions about that night died out as we broke several speeding laws, getting away from where we had been. Only time would tell if any of us would fall victim to dysentery, as would not have been a surprise. We all rode home quietly. As I took inventory of what clothes of mine had actually touched surfaces in the hotel room that still haunts my dreams and therefore must be burned. Okanagan, the place that showed me the baseline of what I will accept in rented overnight accommodations. Okanagan is the town where time stands still and the fights are even slower. The place we would never return to, even if offered quadruple our asking price, if you have taken anything away from these three stories that I have just told you, let it be this. Never go to Okanagan. If I have to pass through Okanagan, Washington to get to heaven, I will take my chances in hell. And that's the damn truth. Thank you for listening. I am Steve Dam. And this has been The Damn Truth.